the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to The Truth Perspective on the Soft Radio Network, the world for people who think. Welcome back to the Truth Perspective. I am Harrison Cayley in the studio today. We've got Elon Martin and William Barbet. Hey, everybody. We're uh, really excited to have back with us today Alexandra Halabi from the IMEMC, or the International Media East Media Center. I'm sorry. It's the International Middle East Media Center. Uh, it's a collective of independent journalists covering the Israel-Palestine situation. Uh, Alexandra has been on numerous um, media outlets before, uh, ABC Radio, among many others. Uh, we're very lucky to have her back with us to give us some of her insights as to um, the recent developments with the election in Israel, among other things. Anyway... Welcome back, Alexandra. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. Hey. Hi. So um, just before the show, we talked a little bit uh, with you on uh, what seems to be one of the biggest stories concerning uh, the conflict. Um, and it's regarding Benjamin Netanyahu's uh, re-election to office in Israel. Uh there's quite a lot to be said about that. It covers a lot of different areas. Um, and we were just looking for your input on that, your feelings about it, and what you feel some of the major things to note about it are. Well, yeah, uh, it's been quite a week in uh, Israeli politics. And if if you're in the United States, it's been quite a week in Israeli politics um, <laughs> on Fox television who seem to have uh, mistaken Israel for being the 51st day. Um, Fox News spent uh, all of uh, St. Patrick's Day uh, with breaking coverage. Uh, They had um, their correspondence in Jerusalem and Tel Aviv and at polling places in Herzliya. So it was very interesting to see how Fox covered the Israeli election as if Netanyahu was going to be our prime minister. So that it, it was a really interesting week. But um, in, in all seriousness, Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu definitely came from behind. Um, I didn't see him being reelected. Uh, a lot of Israelis didn't see him being reelected, um, but he came from behind uh, with a reelection victory this week. Um, it was an 11th hour turn of events that was fueled by overt uh, racism. Uh, he embraced a, an apartheid policy. He fear-mongered uh, about Arab voters showing up in droves. And that did the trick. Um, also, it exposed a very ugly 
face of the Israeli electorate who who got scared that the Arabs were coming and all of a sudden, uh, you know, people that may have been swing voters decided that they were going to vote for Netanyahu. But um, Israelis, uh, or I'm sorry, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu's re-election has put the U.S. in a very difficult situation um, because so long as Netanyahu had been pretending that he was committed to democratic values, a two-state solution, you know, the the same rhetoric that that he would say in English while saying something totally different in Hebrew, which is a, a charge that the Israelis leveled at the Palestinians for many times over the years, that um, Chairman Arafat would say something in, in English and say something different in Arabic. And uh, President Abbas would say something the same. While this this same holds true for Prime Minister Netanyahu, who all along had been saying, uh, let's increase the illegal settlements, let's continue to colonize the West Bank, there's no such thing as a two-state solution. He was saying this in Hebrew while in English, um, paying lip service, uh, pretending to be committed to a two-state solution. Um, while all that was happening, as uh, my friend Ryan Cooper wrote in the week, uh, in a great op-ed this week, uh, so long as, as Netanyahu was pretending to be committed to, to the democratic values that America alleges to uh, uphold, then the Americans could look the other way or they could blame the Palestinians for you know the lack of progress with peace. But now, um, despite... Netanyahu doing some backtracking since his election. It's very clear who Netanyahu is. Um, at very best, Prime Minister Netanyahu is an, is an unreliable partner for peace, uh, if not an outright uh, foe of an independent Palestine. And a lot of people have pointed out that the divergence of um, U.S. and Israeli interests has never been more pronounced than right now. The big question is, how the U.S. should adjust to this. Um, the Obama administration uh, indicated yesterday uh, through their spokesperson, Josh Ernest, that um, the U.S. may, in fact, support a U.N. resolution which would call for an independent Palestine, uh, state of Palestine along the 67 borders. Um, I think that if the U.S. supports that resolution, it should go even further by cutting the U.S. Uh, the U.S.'s massive subsidies to Israel and withdrawing yeah. diplomatic cover for Netanyahu's every move. You know, don't you agree with that? Absolutely. I mean, it, it you know it speaks to actions speak louder than words. Um, yeah. You know, if Netanyahu was sincere about. Uh, a two-state solution, why continue to build settlements as he's negotiating peace, just for one? And there's already right. whispers in Congress of, of starting to you know, go back on some of these uh, subsidies that they've been giving Israel. Mm -hmm. And, you know, of course, there's been an unquestioning uh, uh, deference to Israeli priorities that's basically mandatory in U.S. politics, even among uh, promising American politicians who seem honest, like Senator Elizabeth Warren, who unfortunately supported Israel's barbaric attack on, on Gaza in the summer and lost incredible respect and 
demonstrated that she's just another politician. Um, mm-hmm. Even Elizabeth Warren hasn't challenged uh, Israel's um, priorities as far as growing a greater Israel. But if the Israeli prime minister is flat out admitting that the West Bank and Gaza will never be rid of the occupation no matter what, then that uh, deference will eventually become untenable. The mask Mm -hmm. has been removed. Um, You know, now that the uh, Iraq and the Afghanistan wars are winding down as far as the U.S. is concerned, Israel has reclaimed its spot now as the top recipient of American aid dollars. Um, Just a little fact, in 2015, in the 2015 budget, the Obama administration requested, has requested now, and will almost certainly receive, $3.1 billion in aid for Israel. That's $378 for every Israeli citizen. Um, As Matt uh, Iglesias recently reported, that means on a per capita basis, this is six times what Afghanistan gets as the second largest recipient of American aid and 94 times what America sends to Nigeria. And Nigeria is the fifth largest recipient of American aid. So it's a mark of Israel's massive, massive influence in American politics that it keeps getting this money despite the fact that foreign aid is consistently the least popular kind of government spending with Americans and doubly so because Israel's a rich country that doesn't need the aid. So mm-hmm. what, what I'm getting at is that Israel's wealth also means that cutting aid off would not concretely harm its military readiness. Um, the U.S. cutting subsidies, the U.S. cutting funding wouldn't, you know, those, those types of sanctions wouldn't really impact Israel. Israel's got plenty of its own money for that. There um, you know, plenty of very wealthy Zionists that are funneling, constantly funneling money into Israel. Most of the U.S. aid money is spent on U.S. military hardware anyway um, that's sent to Israel. So probably the only um, entities I think that would be significantly affected if the U.S. cuts uh, funding would be American defense contractors. But <laughs> withdrawing aid is a symbolic act. It's a powerful one. Um, without an unquestioning American backstop, Israel would be almost as isolated diplomatically as Iran. So for that, Israel has nobody to blame but itself. Um, Israel deserves Netanyahu. They have, they've elected him. They've, they've got what they deserve. And now the, the world is, has seen his racism. They've seen his, his grand apartheid scheme that's uh, being put into place. Um, more fundamentally, liberal American Jewish leaders have been arguing for years that if Israel were free from violent pressure, that it would jump at the chance for a durable peace. But it didn't. And even though the occupied territories have been quiet since last summer's bloody attack on Gaza, Israel has practically ignored the question for almost the whole election until Netanyahu turned to apartheid and race baiting. So um, the bedrock of all of this election this week is 50 years of Israeli occupation of Gaza and the West Bank. This is an issue that looks uh, less gray all the time. The occupation is wrong. Mm -hmm. It's a problem. Israel's responsible. And now, you know, um, Netanyahu's victory has discredited 
the liberal American Zionist groups like J Street. Um, I, I've often asked, how can one be liberal and a Zionist? Um, one is fascism, one is not. They don't go together. Um, but nonetheless, uh, J Street had hoped that Israel would accept a negotiated settlement. It didn't. It's increasingly impossible to avoid the conclusion. And even more moderates, like President Obama, that uh, Israel will simply never agree to any Palestinian rights in the occupied territories unless it's forced onto it. I think it's becoming very, very clear that um, diplomacy between the West and Israel is crumbling um, as a result of this election. Well, you mentioned a, a couple things that I thought were very uh, well put. The, the mask is coming off. Now, the way I've already, the way I've always seen it has been that it's a it's a, a mask that has been acknowledged like tacitly by both sides. So Israeli politicians and leaders will pay lip service to the peace process or a two state solution or just any kind of progress, however far in the future it may be, or however much they may put it off. And the U.S sees that and just accepts that as a plausible front or cover in order to just continue with the financial aid and just all that kind of diplomatic speak and political speak uh, in terms of um, humanitarianism and the peace process. But there wasn't really anything behind it to really back it up in terms of actual convictions. Now that mask is taken away. So like you said, the um, if the U.S. stops giving so much aid to Israel, that's more of a symbolic gesture. Now, with something like a U.N. resolution, do you see, would that, is there any teeth, are there any teeth behind that? Like, would, can, do you think that there's any hope that this could lead to a good thing? Or will it just push Israel into a corner and will they just continue, like, can they be forced to engage in a peace process, basically? Uh, yeah, good question. There are already tons of UN resolutions, um, which Israel has, mm -hmm. you know, flipped its nose at. Um, in 2011, U.S. Ambassador to the UN, um, Susan Rice, who is it's completely in the pocket of APAC, um, she, and, and in fact, is one of the most miserable, uh, inadequate ambassadors that the United States has ever uh, put, uh, appointed. Um, Susan Rice vetoed the 2011 UN resolution, which was um, essentially uh, condemning the illegal settlement buildup. So the United States was at the same time saying, we, you know, we feel like these set, these illegal settlements that are being built up in the West Bank are a a block a block a block in the in the path to peace. And then mm -hmm. when it came down to a UN resolution to condemn those settlements, the UN vetoed it. Mm -hmm. I was flabbergasted. Um, I I remember it very clearly. Um, <clears throat> to answer your question. Um, do, do, do these UN resolutions have teeth? Absolutely not. Israel mm -hmm. doesn't abide by uh, any UN resolutions. Israel, in fact, Israel's wonderful um, foreign minister, um, Mr. Avigdor Lieberman, who recently 
called for the beheading of Palestinians. Um, He has already, he's called for the dismantling of, of, um, of the United Nations a number of times. And the Zionist lobby in Washington has constantly lobbied for the defunding of UNRWA and of UN programs that support Palestine refugees. These are refugees that were made that status by Israel's uh, Nakba and removal and attempted uh, genocide. But um, Tuesday's election delivered a really familiar result that even though I was shocked with it, uh, it it was another victory for Netanyahu, whose Likud party absolutely walloped the leftist Zionist Union, which again, you know, I I don't get this leftist Zionist. There's no such mm-hmm. thing as a leftist Zionist. That's you know, the, to me, that's like saying um, a liberal Nazi. Yeah, you, there's that, that doesn't go together. And you know, from from my past. Um, conversation on this radio show, I don't like to use uh, Nazi Nazi comparisons with with Israel, but but for for that purpose, um, but still the election was really <laughs> strange. Um, it's rare enough for the Israeli Prime Minister to give a speech before the U.S. Congress. Um, it's even rarer to do that with the object, uh, the objective of undermining a major American diplomatic initiative as part of a triple backflip election maneuver to distract from uh, your nation's wretched economy, which is kind of what was going on. Um, the, the Republicans used it, you know, to... There was a lot of things that were coming up, funding for Homeland Security... Uh, that the Republicans were pushing against um, all of that, and then here, here they parade in Netanyahu. Um, he's, you know, giving this speech like a king, and they're up and down, up and down. It's like it's like Catholic mass, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, there, <laughs> there, you know, when when are they going to stand and applaud this guy? Every word he says. Um, I. Also watched that that speech. I was bored to tears. It gave me a headache. Um, but it, it was it was really disrespectful because at the very same time that Netanyahu was in the United States, the People's House, um, talking about the horrors of 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 a, of a nuclear Iran. The Secretary of the United States, John Kerry, was in Europe negotiating with the Iranians mm-hmm. on the exact same topic. So uh, there was just no precedence for this. But that's exactly what Netanyahu did. Um, he, uh, falling behind the center-left Zionist Union in the polls over the last several days before the election, he turned extremely hard right. He announced an explicit rejection of a Palestinian state. And then as vote, voting approached, he he really sank to the gutter, uh, to gutter racism in an attempt to stoke the ultra-conservative vote, in which he did. He warned on Facebook that the Arab, uh, quote, the Arab voters are going to the polls in droves. Left-wing organizations are bringing them in buses. 
very much Bull Connor of Birmingham in the 1960s with black Americans going to the polls. The Negroes are going to uh, end up uh, taking over our state. Uh, our city, this kind of thing. It was it was mm-hmm. very um, it, it was very reminiscent of that. Um, the hidden upside of this rancid politicking is that Netanyahu did both America and Israel a favor by clarifying, in plain words, yep. what was already the de facto reality in Israel and the occupied territories. And if America and Israel had any sense at all. They would seize this opportunity to stop heading down the road toward grand apartheid. Just to um, explain grand apartheid, in South Africa, grand apartheid was the system of major racial separation that forced blacks out of the most developed parts of the nation as opposed to petty apartheid consisted of smaller measures like a ban against interracial marriage, which is also illegal in Israel. There's a ban against interreligious marriage. Um, the keystone of grand apartheid were the, the Bantu stands, which were little, tiny, uh, geographically non-contiguous so-called homelands for, for black tribes. Uh, they were set aside for the blacks while the white government could pretend like it was doing separate but equal while it, while it was taking all of the best land and exploiting a politically powerless black working class who were living in slums in the Benjistans. That's yeah, that what's happening familiar. in Israel. Yeah, that's exactly what's happening in Israel. Um, uh, it, it took me a long time to get to saying apartheid as applied to Israel. Um, I'm not sure why. I, I, I think I had hope for a long time. I had, I had hope that there would be um, that the tide would change, that there would be a heart, that that there would be a, a messiah, a mashiach, a, a good entity, a good politician that would come out in Israel and say, we can't continue to subjugate, we can't continue to discriminate, we can't continue to occupy, and it didn't happen. The facts are there. Gaza and the West Bank have been dominated by Israel since 1967. The Palestinians who live there have very few rights. Uh, they already live uh, Israelis' worst nightmares. Um, it's not democracy, to say the least. And now that Netanyahu openly says that there will never be a Palestinian state or an end to the occupation so long as he's prime minister, well, if that's not grand apartheid, then the word mm-hmm. apartheid has no meaning whatsoever. Um, you know, Netanyahu's recent comments are not only revealing, uh, but they could put America in quite a bind because um, if Netanyahu, you know, prevails with this um, diplomatic alliance with, with uh, or if, if Netanyahu prevails with with continuing with the occupation, with continuing the buildup of settlements and colonization illegally in the West Bank, then the nature of Israel's diplomatic alliance with the U.S. will have to change. The U.S. cannot continue to extend its U.N. veto to a country whose government has formally disavowed negotiations. So the world's eyes are not only on um, the... uh, um, 
on Israel, the world's eyes are on the U.S., the world's eyes are on the U.K. Um, this week, Deputy Prime Minister of the U.K., Nick Clegg, said that um, if truly Netanyahu opposes the two-state solution, then the U.K. will have no other alternative but to recognize an independent state of Palestine. All of this uh, mess has begun to poison Israel's reputation. Uh, even the American Democrats are beginning to look stupid for continuing to support this apartheid and uh, an open embrace of grand apartheid policy would only accelerate the process. The answer to this is to ramp up the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement, BDS all the way. Um, that's what individuals can do if if people feel like, you know, I can't do anything. Uh, yes, you can. You can avoid purchasing products that are um, made in Israel. You can avoid purchasing products that are made in illegal, illegally occupied West Bank. And you can avoid tourism to Israel. Go to Palestine. The uh, Siraj Center at Siraj, S-I-R-A-J, Center, dot C-N-T-E-R, dot org, uh, is sponsoring a wonderful summer tour of Palestine. Um, people can will get the opportunity to tour uh, Bethlehem. Um, they, they'll get the opportunity to sit in on lectures at Bethlehem University. There's a, a Christian um, context uh, for those who aren't interested in the religious aspects. Uh, there are the daily visits to beautiful communities, including to Romola, to the Taiba Beer uh, Microbrewery, which is the only beer brewery in the Middle East, and it's located in Palestine. We're very proud of that. Uh, there's a winery, a wonderful winery with wine tasting. There are delicious restaurants. Um, so, people, this summer is going to be wonderful for tourism in Palestine, uh, particularly in the West Bank. And people can go to Siraj, S-I-R-A-J, center.org to uh, find out more about that, what kind of documents they need, and uh, how they can get there. But if, if people feel like they, there's nothing they can do, they, there's plenty. Don't buy products that are made in Israel. Sabra, Hummus, um, Coca-Cola. Boycott Coca-Cola products because they're being they have they're being bottled on illegal Palestinian land. Um, Hewlett Packard do not purchase Hewlett Packard products. Do not purchase um, make uh, cosmetics by um, Estee Lauder. I mean, there, there's uh, do not purchase Ahava. Do not uh, shop at Saban soap uh, shops, which are very um, they're one in there's one or two in Montreal, there's one or two or three in London. Um, go to BDS movement, Google BDS movement. Uh, the uh, International Middle East Media Center fully supports the BDS movement. Uh, we support boycotting Israel. We support divestment from universities, academia, and corporations and churches, uh, divesting from Israeli products and companies. And we support sanctions against Israel. So that's what people can do. Check out BDS movement. Now, I wanted to get back with the Israeli elections. Uh, the Arab party was uh, very happy gaining something like 13 or 14 seats. 
And I was curious what your thoughts about that was, uh, you know, how effective can they be or is that something to be proud of? Yeah, it is something to be proud of. The Arab Party came together, which is hard to get Arabs to come together on anything, um, <laughs> as we see quite often in mm-hmm. every Arab country. Um, but yeah, the Arab Party came together, they formed the unified list, and um, I'm very proud. I think that it is something to be proud of. Um, uh, MK uh, Tibby um, uh, had a lot to say. Um, the Arabs, basically the Arab Party gathered in Nazareth to watch the elections. Nazareth has a, is basically the center of Palestinian society in Israel and um and as the you know the elections came in the results came in and, and it started to appear as the Arabs would get a few more you know seats than uh, uh each hour. Yeah, yeah, it's it's something to celebrate. It's definitely something to celebrate. Um now I will say that the Secretary General of the Palestinian People's Party has called on the Palestinian Authority to reconsider the Oslo agreements with Tel Aviv and to stop abiding by them, um, especially under the current political developments in Israel and the escalated violations that Israel has um, violated the Oslo agreements something like a hundred times. The uh, Palestine People's Party, which was recently attacked in Nablus, um, nobody was killed, but the offices were shot up. Um, The party released a press press statement yesterday saying that the re-election of uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu and his Likud party and and, and other fundamentalist parties requires new policies and re-evaluations. Um, especially since, like we said, Netanyahu clearly and repeatedly declared his rejection to the two-state solution and his intention to continue the illegal uh, construction and expansion of colonies in occupied Palestine. Um, The political scene following the elections uh, in Palestine indicates um, the Palestinians see the election as a or or the Israelis the face of the Israelis have been unmasked to the Palestinians the Israeli people because they overwhelmingly voted for uh this racist and so now the Palestinians see much more of the Israeli people as a right-wing racist kind of people that have adopted um a fascist sort of uh ideology um it's it has um kind of uh, infiltrated Israeli society, its political leaders, and the Palestinian people and their leadership and the international community are required to act and to stop the Israeli violations and crimes. Uh, they've got to oblige uh, Israel to abide by international law to end the occupation. Um, I don't know how that's going to come about, but uh, please remember that April 1st, uh, it's not an April Fool's joke. Uh, Palestine becomes an official member of the International Criminal Court. So, um, yeah, we'll see how that mm-hmm. unfolds. You know, um, 
one of the conclusions that I share with you, I think, is that uh, this re-election uh, is actually one of the best things uh, to happen in spite of Netanyahu uh, in a long time uh, for the Palestinians. Um, and the reason is, you know, as you were saying before, Alexandra, uh, you know, there, there's really no such thing as a as a left leaning Zionist um, organization. Um, and that kind of brings us back to, you know, it is was the Zionist Union led by Isaac Herzog even a uh, a, a viable force for change or peace? And I mean, you, you had Sippy Livni. I think is part of the party there. And um, she's maybe not as vehement sounding as uh, Netanyahu or uh, Avigdor Lieberman, but um, I think when it comes right down to it, uh, would be willing to do many of the same things, Uh, you know, attack Gaza, uh, build West Bank settlements. Um, And so they just would have put a, a nice face on the occupation. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I don't think that Sippy Livni uh, would put a nice face on anything. She is a wanted war <laughs> criminal who can't travel in Europe. So, um, particularly when she was in charge of the 2006 attack on Gaza, which killed uh, thousands of people, um, that's not been forgotten. Uh, Zippy Lisney cannot travel to the United Kingdom. She can't. She's wanted by the Hague for war crimes. So, you know, if if, if you consider that a nice face, then <laughs> maybe. But, um, you know, just recently, uh, a couple of weeks ago, um, the elderly statesman President Simone Perez, who's also a wanted war criminal, was de- uh, his plane was denied entry into Norway's airspace. Um, hmm. there, you, you're not going to find an Israeli politician that can easily travel anywhere except the U.S. or Canada without um, possibly being arrested. So that's why they don't go to uh, Europe. They don't go to to the U.K., to Ireland. They send their diplomats who... Um, haven't been in charge of of uh, genocidal warfare. Zippy Livni is, uh, like I said, she's a wanted war criminal. She's wanted in the UK. Uh, Interpol has uh, has had a, uh, a arrest warrant for her for a very long time now. So uh, if people consider that the liberal face of of Israel and the left leaning face of Israel, then my God, uh, yeah. you know, we're dealing with. Uh, what, who, what monsters are we dealing with? Um, I I still have hope. I know good Israelis. I, despite so many that that voted this time for an openly racist and fascist Netanyahu, who rejects openly a two-state solution, who promised to continue the illegal, brutal occupation, um, I still know wonderful Israelis who uh, are are absolutely horrified that their country has become this. Um, but, you know, I cannot continue to reconcile that I know some great Israelis 
touch with the fact that the country that they're continuing to live in is uh, turning into one of the most egregious um, violators of human rights um, right up there with uh, Iran and uh, North Korea and Russia. I can uh, I can't. Um, it's, it's, it's becoming more difficult for me to reconcile that, and then that's unfortunate. I, I do separate personally my friends uh, who are Israeli, uh, many Israeli journalists who are are smart and funny, and and they're very clear on what's happening. But you know they continue to live there, and I guess somebody's got to live there in order to try and make change from the inside. But um, I. You know, once again, we're boycotting Israel. We're boycotting Israeli products. We're calling on universities, academia, churches, synagogues around the world to divest from Israeli companies and to drop their bonds, sell off their bonds, uh, get rid of any uh, um, investments that they have with the state of Israel or companies that do business in Israel and to, and we're calling for governments around the world to sanction Israel. Um, that's, that's something that we can do. It worked in Africa. Uh, it stopped apartheid in Africa and um, in South Africa, I should say. And um, we have American politicians who support it. There's a wonderful book by my friend, Former President, uh, former American President Jimmy Carter uh, has a great book called Palestine, Peace, Not Apartheid. That book should be read by everybody because it lays out, um, going back to the beginning of Zionism to Theodore Herzl, um, yes, there was at one point in history in the 19th century in classical Zionism a need for Zionism because there were uh, pogroms that were taking place. The Jews had been sent by the Russian Tsar to the Pale of Settlement, which was the worst part of uh, Eastern Europe. And uh, the Jews were were regularly uh, blood libeled and charged with ignorant things. There's a long history of anti-Semitism just based on people being Jewish. So originally, Zionism, as explained by Theodor Herzl, had an important part, um, had an important role to play for the survival of the Jewish religion. Um, What it has devolved into has went beyond survival to subjugation of another people, and uh, this is not sustainable. It's really not a sustainable um, method of of living in the Holy Land. Speaking of uh, the subjugation of another people, uh, it just seems as though the situation in Gaza in particular has gotten worse and worse and worse uh, since uh, the IDF's operation last summer. Um, could you just say a few words on 
the situation on the ground there in Gaza at this point and what is or isn't being done to help alleviate the suffering that's going on there? Yeah, sure. There remain over 100,000 people who are homeless uh, in, in Gaza. These were already refugees uh, before the war. Um, they've endured a terrible winter where it's been uh, unseasonably cold. They've had flooding, um, and uh, it's it's been really bad. There have been um, explosions uh, of generators. Um, there's no electricity. Israel purposely targeted the electrical plant in Gaza. So people who do have electricity are operating on generators, which require expensive fossil fuels, which are difficult to attain. So many people can only operate one or two hours a day with um, electricity in their house. It has caused uh, people to not be able to um, keep food stored in cold storage. It's caused um, shops to not be able to remain open. I was recently appointed as the international ambassador of a new um, NGO called Solar Gaza Lights. People can go to solargazalights.org. Uh, it's a program that intends to bring solar uh, energy panels into Gaza in order to uh, provide a more efficient alternative. Um, there are people who in Gaza who need dialysis, who have died because they could, the dialysis machine didn't have the electricity to run. There are people who have um, died in the hospital because the electric respirators uh, and ventilators uh, didn't have the electricity to continue to operate. Uh, people have died of blood clots because of the, the leg wraps that require electricity. Um, and that, you know, it, it's a horrible thing. Once again, I encourage everybody to, um, I'm very happy, I'm honored to have been uh, appointed as the International Goodwill Ambassador for this project, the Solar Gaza Light Organization, and I encourage anyone to go to solargazalight.org. Uh, in order to learn more about what this program is about. Uh, we're, we're currently engaged with UNRWA in order to affiliate with UNRWA and uh, with the United Nations in order to get more funding and more opportunities to bring more solar panels to Gaza. Um, but uh, the situation in Gaza has not improved. There's, it's still rubble, it's still destruction, there's disease, there's death all around. There are bodies that have never been uh, recovered, um, neighborhoods that are completely destroyed. And um, yet the spirit of the Palestinian people cannot be broken. Just uh, the day before yesterday, I saw some beautiful photography uh, by my friend uh, Jahad Siftali, who uh, showed the kids uh, flying kites on the beach, uh, the very same beach where the Baker boys, the Bakr boys, were were uh, shelled and killed in the summer. Um, life goes on. 
um, war is terrible. There's there's a terrible psychological impact, so socio-psychological impact on the people of Gaza. But war uh, doesn't stop flowers from blooming and birds from flying. And the people of Gaza are Palestinian. They're resilient. And um, they suffer greatly, but they continue to live. And that uh, is an active form of resistance, just continuing to live. Um, one more thing that I want to say is that um, Egypt has successfully destroyed uh, the southern uh, city of, of Rafa, uh, which they consider that creating a buffer zone. Um, mm. The Of course, we understand Egypt is being run by an autocrat named Abdel Fattah al-Sisi, uh, who has jailed journalists, who has, he's, he's just horrible. Um, and Egypt is complicit with, complicit with Israel in its blockade and siege of Gaza by shutting the Rafa border. Uh, one more thing, speaking of Rafa, this past week on the 16th was the uh, 12th anniversary of the killing of American activist Rachel Corey. She was an um, American from the Pacific Northwest who went to Palestine in order to show solidarity with the Palestinian people. In 2003, she was uh, outside a doctor's house in Rafa, uh, which was set to be demolished by a caterpillar bulldozer uh, with an Israeli uh, driver, and uh, she was with a bullhorn. People remember seeing the iconic images and video of her with the bullhorn uh, saying, you know, do not destroy this house. Uh, the bulldozer driver dumped sand on her and then run over her body, killing her. Rachel Corey was known to the International Middle East Media Center in 2003, our center in Beitzahur, uh served as a uh, collective office for international journalists to go and to plug in and connect to the Internet. Um, the International Solidarity Movement at that time shared our office space, and uh, Rachel was a, a member of the ISM. And um, she uh, wrote many of her pieces from our offices at the International Middle East Media hmm. Center. We went on in November of 2003 to publishing our English language IMEMC.org daily news update. Uh, I wrote a piece remembering and recalling Rachel on the 12th uh, commemoration of her death. And um, one thing, I, I, I didn't know Rachel. I talked to a lot of people in our organization who did. And one thing that I can say is that for the uh, Rachel Corey's death, as much as her life, touched so many people around the world and demonstrated the brutality of Israel and how Israel cares not about nationality when uh, it targets um, solidarity activists. But 
Rachel's death only encouraged more international solidarity activists to go to Palestine and to support the Palestinian people and to stand in solidarity. Um, I think that Rachel Corey would be have never dreamt that her um, final act of resistance um, would have been a, 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 an image spread around the world and would have encouraged so many people to become aware of what was happening in Palestine. Uh, she is a martyr for the cause. Um, I would much prefer her to be alive and to be talking with us on this this radio show today, but um, <laughs> Rachel Corey will. There's a, there, there are several streets in Palestine called Rachel Corey Street. She is forever remembered by the Palestinian people, and once again, her uh, brutal death at the hands of the Israeli demoli- demolition crew um, uh, has only increased the resolve of international um, solidarity volunteers. And anyone who's interested in, in going to Palestine as a as a solidarity volunteer can go to ism.org. They can go to uh, pcr.ts, which is the Palestine Center for Reproachment. We have volunteer opportunities constantly. And they can go to sirajcenter.org for the summer uh, tours that are coming up, which will be an introduction to the context of the Nakba and to uh, the occupation. Alexandra, thank you so much for speaking with us today on The Truth Perspective. Um, Your insights and uh, feelings on the subject are valued, and uh, we hope to have you on again sometime soon uh, to discuss developments there. Uh, in the meantime, um, folks, you can visit uh, the website, uh, imemc.org, or the International Media, <laughs> International Middle East Media Center. Um, we wish you a lot of, a lot of success with your ambassadorship of this uh, new effort to bring uh, solar energy uh, to those in plight. And uh, we wish you well. Well, thank you uh, for having me. I always appreciate coming. Anytime you'd like me to come, please certainly uh, let me know, and I'll always make room in my schedule to come back. You have a wonderful program. Um, I've encouraged my followers on Twitter and Facebook and social media to tune in, not only when I'm on, but all the time because the stories (laughs) that, you all bring to light the stories that aren't told, the uh, voice that you give to the voiceless is so very important. The Truth Perspective has become uh, something that I listen to regularly. And oh, thanks so much great. For yeah, <laughs> thank thanks you. so much for having thanks. me on. You guys have a great weekend and a great rest of your show. Okay, you too, Alexander. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, sure. Thanks. Okay, mm-hmm. bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right. So yeah, we'll be we'll hopefully in the future be having Alexandra on, you know, semi regularly to give us updates like that because uh, if you go to the website, you'll just see the amount of news that they cover and um, just on 
on-the-ground events in, in Palestine and in Israel and the, the big geopolitical stuff. So she's a they and Alexandra herself are just a great resource. So we'll thank her again, and we'll have her on in the future. Now, moving on a bit, um, we'll, we'll stay in the Middle East for a bit. Um, some interesting news out of Syria in the past week or so. Syrian air defense apparently brought down a U.S. drone over the Latakia province. Now, what's interesting about that is that there is no ISIS or ISIL presence in that province of Syria. So what was a U.S. drone doing flying over that region? Oh, well, you know, you probably know if if you've listened to the show before, but the U.S. typically... Uh, wouldn't confirm or deny the Jen Psaki um, just confirmed that they lost control of a U.S. drone over the region, but she wouldn't confirm that it had been shot down by Syrian air defense. And so Psaki went on to say, we, of course, reiterate our warning to the Assad regime not to interfere with U.S. aerial assets over Syria. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, the, just the gall of this woman and, well, or whoever writes her talking points, because, I mean, to say that to a, a sovereign nation that you are illegally, you know, conducting air raids over just doesn't make any sense. This, Syria has every right to, to shoot down a foreign drone over a province that has nothing to do with the illegal uh, uh, attack on ISIS in that country, which the Syrian government never agreed to. So that's all I have to say about that. Well, also, you know, never mind the fact that uh, U.S. arms are um, bombing Syrian infrastructure, mm-hmm. uh, all under the cover of attacking ISIS. I mean, it's um, it, it's it's gall. It's uh, it is there is there another word that surpasses gall? I don't it's Saki. <laughs> it's Saki. Well. Just to get into that a bit more about Syria in general, just to give some context about what's been going on, if you read the news, they say it's a civil war in Syria, and that's what's going on, and Assad is the bad guy. Well, say whatever you will about Assad. If you look at the the history of the actual conflict, the, the biggest events started in around 2011 in March. Now, this was when there were some anti-government protests. Now, this, at first... A lot of these protesters, it seemed to be just a genuine protest, peaceful protest. But that very quickly turned violent. Now, so there were confrontations with the police. This was in the city of Dara. And, of course, the the media just had a field day with it because of the so-called, uh, well, the crackdown, the the Syrian police crackdown, the security forces cracking down on these uh, on these protesters. Well, it turns out at that protest, the protesters were well armed. They attacked security forces. They were destroying government buildings. There were also several pro-government demonstrations going on at the same time that were ignored by the Western media. A poll around that time showed that 55% of Syrians wanted Assad to stay in power. So a majority not a huge majority, but a majority nonetheless. But that's how the protest started. Before that, well, we'll get into some more details about that, but before that, if you look at U.S. foreign policy, it's very convenient that 
or maybe it's just a big coincidence that if you go back as far as 1991, it seems like this was just exactly what the U.S. wanted. Um, John Mearsheimer, he said that, uh, uh, fittingly, he said that promoting democracy is simply a means of putting pro-U.S. and anti-Russian leaders in power. Now, in 1991, General Wesley Clark is on the record as quoting Paul, uh, is it Paul Wolfowitz, was that his first name? Yeah, Paul mm-hmm. Wolfowitz, as saying, quote, one thing that we learned is that we can use our military in the Middle East and the Soviets won't stop us. And we got about five or ten years to clean up those old Soviet client regimes, Syria, Iran, Iraq, before the next great superpower comes on to challenge us. It was right after the breakup of the Soviet Union. And they're already planning, okay, well, we've got to, you know, get, we've got to pick up all those old Soviet regimes to establish ourselves to prevent a new superpower. Now, they've obviously failed at that because Russia is now a superpower. Then again, um, Wesley Clark, six weeks after 9-11, he's the guy that said that he was in a, a secretary of defense or no, he was at a joint chiefs meeting and the secretary of defense sent a memo saying that seven countries, the, the so-called seven countries in five years memo that they were going to go after Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, Libya, Somalia, Sudan, and then Iran. And if you look at those countries, Iraq, Syria, Libya, mm-hmm. Somalia, Iran. Now what's going on today? You know, Iraq has already been destroyed and turned into a, pseudo-client state for the U.S. Uh, destroyed, same thing. Mm-hmm. Iran, Syria. Okay. Now, so these these protests started. It was only after uh, the March unrest, March 2011, in August, that NATO said that they would now send weapons to the rebels. Um, tens of thousands of foreign-trained fighters many of whom would later join ISIS, using Turkey. So several months after these March protests, then NATO comes out and says publicly that they're going to start arming these Syrian rebels and sending thousands of foreign-trained fighters into the country. Now, that was for public consumption, because it turns out, obviously, uh, that this was going on from the very beginning. Sibel Edmonds has had a series of articles and kind of exposés that she put out showing that this covert training and supplying started at least in April. This is the the month after the very first protests. So you could either say that this was a a genuine protest movement that was immediately co-opted, or it was uh, mixed at the beginning, so there were genuine people that were protesting. Because you'll get protests in any country with people that feel they have reasons for, for protesting. Unfortunately, that just opens them up to being co-opted by in this so-called you know, color revolution scheme. Now, there was a strat for uh, that kind of intelligence um, analysis group, strat for. There was a leak from them, um, put, I think it was put out by WikiLeaks, um, that said, one of them, one of them really said, quote, that the opposition, the Syrian opposition remains largely nonviolent. And then it goes on to say that the the protest movements were incapable of large armed resistance. Now, this is the kind that Debkafile had reported was already present. So Debkafile is saying that there there is large armed resistance, and Stratford is saying that there's no that this isn't possible. 
without substantial foreign involvement. So without that involvement, the Stratford League said, uh, the opposition is very unlikely to overwhelm and topple the regime without substantial foreign military and financial backing. Without financial backing, the opposition movement is unlikely to acquire, to acquire enough money or gain enough traction to acquire large quantities of weaponry, let alone achieve regime change. The movement is simply too small and too ill-equipped. So right there... Um, and there are there are several. If you, if there's an article up right now on on Syria. It's the best of the web. You can also check out uh, Sibel Edmonds because there there are a lot more um, quotes and and sources uh, and official like confirmed sources saying all these things that that directly uh, confirm that yes, the NATO, the U.S. was supplying weapons and training and and aid to the Syrian rebels from the very beginning. And s s tens of thousands of fighters, like I said, many of whom would later join ISIS. So what they needed to do and what they s explicitly said in their kind of policy decisions was that they, they were to use humanitarian principles as a type of cover. And, you know, that's pretty typical. They do that all the time. So they couldn't frame it in such a way as we just want re regime change. So they frame it in a way that the that anyone not in Syria looking at the situation will say, oh, you know, look at that Assad, look at those atrocities, we've got to do something about it. And so people will get behind it when the real motives are anything but that. So everything coming out of Syria for these last four years has just been a total PR campaign. Um, the at least in my view, the the casual the casualty numbers for the the people uh, killed by the Assad regime are rebels. These are the same rebels that have been trained and armed and funded by NATO. And even the CIA uh, cannot, will not confirm those numbers. Even the CIA can't get behind them because they know they're just pulled out of thin air. In fact, the majority of people killed tend to be um, the members of the official Syrian uh, police or armed forces. So one of the other leaks had said just that, that the, they need mass media attention on a massacre in order to get across this humanitarian principles. And then after that, of course, we had the Syrian gas, you know, aside from his own people, which didn't happen. It was the rebels that did that. And the Western media and politicians pretty much flipped that around. So just a little bit of update on that. Yeah. You know, what's interesting is you have uh, the other day there was an article on some about uh, the numbers of Syrian refugees who've um, had to make their way to uh, Lebanon and some in Turkey. And the number is going to millions. Uh, and, and these are basically a forgotten, um, a forgotten part of the population, not by Syria, who's trying to hold everything together as best they can. But if... If the U.S. and the West was so adamant about protecting Syrians from from being gassed, uh, for instance, by a, by Assad, which is what they were claiming, why aren't they lifting a finger uh, to to aid them? Yeah, why aren't they give, sending some of that money that they send to Israel, <laughs> putting it to a good cause? Well, there you go. And not to not to digress too much, but um, what you mentioned about uh, the Stratford. Institute mm -hmm. uh, and their 
assessing, um, you know, what would be required to, uh, to create a situation, um, you know, as we're seeing. Uh, this is the same institute that came out not too long ago to say that um, yeah. regime change in Ukraine is the most blatant coup in history. Yeah. So, you know, and you, you counter that with like this Depka group depka file yeah. depka file which uh you know it's this it's it's the kind of uh, polar opposite the bizarro version mm-hmm. of stratford you know they come out with information that supports the uh the imperial uh narrative um so it's just interesting to see that there are uh groups out there who are uh occasionally coming out with information that uh is able to correct uh, these these pieces of uh, bullshit that uh, get mm-hmm. fed us um, mm-hmm. and that help support uh, the ideas uh, that in our minds we latch on to, like, you know, this is a humanitarian effort or uh, we're bringing democracy to a certain area. Well, the U.S. is not stopping on that. I mean, Kerry just this week is, uh, is again accusing Assad of using chlorine gas on his own people. Mm-hmm. So I can't wait to hear some more details about that. But it's just just a replay. So yeah. well, let's just keep pushing it, pushing it. Well, it, it's sort of like Kerry is holding, you know, both the carrot and the stick over Assad. Mm-hmm. Uh, didn't he recently make overtures uh, for, you know, having some kind of new uh, relationship with Syria that would, uh, you know, in, in the aim of fighting terrorism? It's sort of like, well, you, you know, you you side with us on this and start playing our game as we want it, or we'll start uh, talking about chemical weapons, which has long since been debunked. Mm-hmm. Well, it might, they, well, I think what it comes down to, I don't know where it's going to go, but the, the strategy is pretty much failing in Syria because it's been four years and they haven't been able to effect regime change. It turns out that the, the Syrians just have too much support and as much as many losses as they have to these terrorist these foreign terrorist groups the they just the like ISIS just can't get enough of a foothold at this point to actually fulfill US foreign policy so we might be seeing some kind of switches in in techniques and strategies on the US's part because it's just not working yeah you are you seeing a little bit of that with the the State Department coming out and talking about, oh, well, I think we might need to have Assad mm-hmm. in office in order to fight ISIS. Uh, we can't have the country falling apart. And that just sounds like a cover for the mm-hmm. failure of their previous uh, operation. Well, if we look at ISIS in relation to that concept of using uh, humanitarian uh, feelings in people to principles in order to get what they want, I mean, they've perfected this strategy with ISIS because anything that's bad or no, anything that's good that you like, ISIS is totally against and they've got video to prove it. And so, I mean, you know, people like puppies and Nutella. And so you have ISIS using puppies and Nutella to, to lure our women over to Syria and Iraq. You've got, uh, I mean, and they've even, <laughs> now this is the big one for me at least, They've, because ISIS recently in the past couple of weeks and beforehand, they've been kind of going on this museum rampage, going into museums and tearing down and like smashing um, ancient relics and 
just like that invaluable things like Indiana, like I would say these things need to be in a museum. Well, they are in a museum and they're being destroyed. So they're even going after the, the kind of intellectual nerds that like history and knowledge. Because when I, when, when I read about something like the burning of the library of Alexandria, that, you know, it makes me cry. Just that idea of, of destroying a piece of history like that, that, that it's worth can't be measured just because it is history. And so they've even managed to latch onto that feeling by having ISIS destroy all these ancient relics. And it's, it's just a masterful PR campaign because even, you know, when I see the pictures of, even if some of these um, statues that they're destroying are fake or not fake, but replicas, not the originals. Um, the Iraqis have come out and said that they have destroyed some originals. And just watching that, I mean, it's it's tough. Well, this this harkens back to the Taliban and uh, what was happening in Afghanistan in the early 2000s. You had these um, these incredibly old, well-known uh, statues from antiquity being destroyed. And, uh, you know, I, I remember that as one of the images that uh i mean it it struck me as a, an incredible loss um by uh these mindless crazies oh they must you know therefore they must be attacked therefore uh we must uh you know engage with them militarily and and uh and correct this horrific situation in in afghanistan but you have to wonder if that wasn't a um part of the uh the big Nev Brzezinski uh, script, uh, you know, if someone kind of whispered, because why do it then? Mm-hmm. W- you know, to, to, to what end? Why not do it uh, five years earlier? Uh, or why do it at all? Um, so I think these things are just designed to, uh, to capture um, the, the emotional attention and ire of, uh, of, of Westerners. Yeah. They, they, they tap all potential markets mm-hmm. or you, what do they call it when you have, you have your market audience mm-hmm. They're they're out to do, to get every single one of them. And if you look at their, at ISIS's PR, that's the, that's the, just the, the direction that it goes. Uh, there's a, a uh, an article that I read recently by Olson Gunnar from the new Eastern outlook. He said something, I think he put it very well. I'm going to read this paragraph. He said, ISIS could not be a more effective part of America's plans to overthrow the Syrian government and destroy the Syrian state if it, if it had an office at the Pentagon. Having failed to achieve any of its objectives in Syria, it inexplicably invaded Iraq, affording the U.S. military a means of easing into the conflict by first confronting ISIS in Iraq, then following them back across the border into Syria. When this scheme began to lose its impact on public perception, ISIS first started beheading executing uh, Western hostages, including several Americans. When the U.S. needed the French on board, ISIS executed a Frenchman. When the U.S. needed support in Asia, two Japanese were beheaded. And just ahead of President Obama's recent attempt to formally authorize the use of military force against ISIS, this was written a, a while back, Jordanian pilot was apparently burned to death in a cage in an apparent, in an unprecedented act of barbarity that shocked even the most apathetic. So ISIS really does seem to either they've, they've just got no brains and they just everything that they do just happens to to fit right in with 
what U.S. foreign policy wants, or you know, there's something else going on there. Well, you have to wonder what their next will be. Uh, maybe if we anticipate uh, what the next need will be uh, in the area, we can kind of write the script in it a little bit and 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 see what they're and see if it fits. But uh, who knows? I mean, it may just be that they've um, that they're very close to outliving their their use. Um, I think we'll find out soon. All right. There's some uh, change topic a little bit. Uh, there's some interesting uh, global economics uh, news going on. Uh, one of the big ones is this new Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, AIIB. <clears throat> it's a new international finance uh, financial institution that was proposed by China, and it's a multilateral development bank, and it's to provide uh, finance for infrastructure projects in Asia regions. Um, it's being regarded as a rival to the IMF and the World Bank and the Asian Development Bank, which uh, are regarded as being mainly dominated by uh, the United States. Uh, this uh, bank first appeared uh, around October, October 2013. Uh, the, the Chinese government has been consistently frustrated with it. Um, with regards to the slow pace of reforms in governance and wanted greater input on the uh, global established institutions like the IMF. Um, the, the Asian Development Bank Institute published a report in 2010 and said that the region requires $8 billion to be invested from 2010 to 2020 in infrastructure in the region. Um, so that's quite an opportunity there to uh, get a lot of work done. And they have 27 regional members, mostly uh, Asian and uh, Arab countries. And we uh, now have seven non-regional members, and they're all from the EU. Uh, first, we had uh, New Zealand join up. Really after the uh, United Kingdom decided to show up, and, of course, to the U.S.'s dismay, France, Germany, and Italy followed up, and now we have Luxembourg and Switzerland. And even Australia has now expressed interest <clears throat> right, in joining. That's kind of, yep. You've got Australia and even Japan is, a, is considering. Now, uh, Taiwan also wanted to join. Unfortunately, they're not recognized as a country by China, and they're willing to join if they get an invitation from China. Uh, we'll see what happens there. Hong Kong is a, is a member, so that's kind of an interesting. Um, now, the United States seems to be very concerned but yet the World Bank, uh, the president, Jim Young Kim, and the president of the uh, Asian Development Bank, uh, Takahiko Nakeo, said that they were um, all in favor of this new uh, huge infrastructure finance project. Uh, they see quite a bit of need and they're willing to collaborate. But the United States is just putting its nose up in the air and is expressing their concerns of whether the AIIB would have the high standards of governance and whether it would have environmental and social safeguards. Um, and they're even putting pressure, uh, diplomatic pressure against Australia for joining. Now, that seems kind of interesting to me that they would point out these uh, environmental and social safeguards and 
and the importance of that when we see the IMF it just clearly doesn't have that in mind at all. Uh, they rape and pillage countries regularly, and it's uh, pretty much well known. So we'll have to see. Uh, and history shows that you know developing another bank like that is isn't going to be a rival to the existing banks. Uh, as a lose stress, history revisited the establishment of regional investment banks, including the Asian Development Bank, the European Bank of Reconstruction and Development. They did not weaken the established institutions. Rather, they reinforced in, um, the multilateral financial organizations and more vigorously pushed forward the global economy. So it is curious to see why the U.S. is feeling so threatened by this. We'll have to watch the developments on that. Well, I think it's part of just a bigger, a bigger movement and push in global politics away from the U.S. Because it's not just the AIIB. There's BRICS. There's all the kind of regional um, partnerships and and groups that Russia's involved with, like with Belarus and Kazakhstan and um, countries in the Caucasus there. And there are. There are hints or suggestions that this is that the kind of global power structure is moving from the West to the East to Russia and China. And so Russia and China are establishing all these relationships with other countries. And it's the U.S. that's ending up isolated. And so there's it looks like possibly what they're trying to do is set up this alternative structure that can continue on if and when the U.S. system just collapses because the U.S. is not a, an ideal uh, economic you know, basis. for And the currency could have something to do with that as well because I'm sure they're going to be using their local currencies yeah. like they're doing with all these other uh, regions. So, yeah. Yeah, and it, Russia may – well, it looks like Russia is trying to um, back up the ruble with gold so it will be a gold-backed currency. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that would mean that – with the sanctions standing as they are, EU countries would be barred from bypassing the ruble because of these sanctions. That would leave China open to to just directly trade goods and services, bypassing the ruble. But the EU would kind of be left in the in the dark. So we've got now we're seeing like these EU countries like France, Germany, Italy, UK, and and more in the future joining this AIIB. And you look at that on top of other developments such as just the increasing number of countries that are expressing doubt about the about the, the sanctions on Russia. You've got the kind of univocal um, uh, response to the idea of U.S. sending arms to Ukraine. They're saying, no, that's a bad idea. So it's looking like even though the all these European countries are pretty much client states of the U.S., they're at least they're taking some moves like it's little testing. They're testing the waters, I think, by by saying these things and and, and coming out against these U.S. policies. And so it could be um, could be a sign of something big in the future, something bigger in the future. It just depends, I guess, on what France or Germany, like which of the first of them will be to to kind of jump ship. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Speaking of gold, uh, there's been a uh, some massive gold purchases from the central banks again. Uh, 2014, 
they amassed a record 477.2 tons of gold. Um, and it seems to be an attempt to reduce the influence of the U.S. dollar amid the global financial instability. And that's according to the World Gold Council. Um, it's the biggest amount of gold purchases by central banks in nearly 50 years. And uh, something interesting with the gold as well, some top international banks are under investigation for price fixing. Hmm. There's uh, 10 of them uh, for their alleged uh, manipulation of the precious metals market. Um, now, what I think uh, HSBC seems to be one of the big ones in there, and they've been subpoenaed. Um, but they said they're cooperating with officials. Now, what's interesting is that there's now a new um, gold pricing. It's going to go totally online, apparently. Uh, they're going to ditch the old way of using the, the London gold fix, which is something where four banks get together uh, every Thursday afternoon and fix the price of gold <laughs> uh, through phone calls. So it's not very transparent. Nobody knows what's going on or what's being traded. Uh, apparently, this new electronic version is going to open up that and make it more visible and hopefully add more people to the gold fixing, which is going to be done twice a day. Now, the five banks that are going to uh, be members of this are the included in the 10 that are under investigation for metals price fixing. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's like, wait a minute. And China, which is the world's largest consumer of gold, they've been snubbed. They're, they're, they're not being invited or, or being uh, asked to be part of this thing. So, and, uh, and I bet some of those same banks are also involved in, in the Ponzi scheme of the derivative trading and, and high-risk trading that uh, that we uh, fell victim to in 2008. And our, our, since that situation was never corrected uh, properly, uh, we'll probably be one of the nails in the, in the coffin of the U.S. economy coming soon. Yeah, because yeah, they, they say this is designed and expected to be transparent. Um, but we've heard that before, and it seems like, Making it electronic would make it much more easier for them to manipulate the price of gold. Um, and now to hit a little closer to home, uh, dealing with capital rolls, imagine yourself going to a bank to withdraw some cash. You tell the teller, ah, I'd like to withdraw $5,000. She hesitates and wants to know why. You try to tell her politely that it's uh, none of the bank's business. It's my money. Uh, the teller disappears for a few minutes. Then she returns telling you, eh, you can collect the money in a few days because we just don't have that much on hand. So, of course, you're a bit irritated, but you head home. And as you pull into the driveway, two police officers would like to have a word with you about your current withdrawal. Now, this is something that the Justice Department is asking banks to do more. <laughs> Right now, they have to file SARs, which are, let's see, what, <clears throat> which is something banks have to report anytime there's transactions over, it used to be 10000 but now it's over $5,000. Uh, 
And uh, apparently they can be fined if they don't file. Um, even bank execs and directors can be imprisoned. And there seems to be even a quota that banks have to meet to filling out these. Um, but the U.S. Justice Department wants to wants the banks to go even further by alerting law enforcement, which can possibly seize your funds and initiate an investigation. So, so basically, you're kind of being criminalized for wanting to withdraw your money right. over a certain amount. Mm-hmm. Okay. And SARs are suspicious activity reports. Yeah, suspicious when people want their money. Yes. <laughs> yeah, why, why would they want their money? <laughs> so, so be on the lookout for that. It's just slowly creeping on. It must be to support terrorism. Otherwise, why why would you yeah. withdraw any money from the bank or drugs or any kind of criminal activity? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah that's the only thing. That's the only thing people really need money for is illegal stuff, right? Yeah, I mean, we, we should have everything we need and buy it on credit. But why wouldn't you want your money in our banks, uh, even if we don't actually have your money? <laughs> don't pay you much interest. Yeah, I just think that's ridiculous. That uh, the whole banking system is. Just it boggles my mind that on on paper or on your computer screen it says you've got a certain amount of money. So you go to the bank to get your money, but oh so no, sorry, we we don't have it. Well, where is it? Well, <laughs> <laughs> that's not the way it works. Oh, really? It's not the way it works. So so where's my money? Well, I've I've got bad memories because I remember the first bank account I had. I remember my parents and I set it up, so I had a little bit of savings in there. And then I didn't use it for a while. And then I remembered, oh, I've got some money in the bank. I want to, and I wanted to, there was a toy that I wanted to buy. So I went in the bank with my mom and I wanted to withdraw the money that I had in there. And they said, oh, well, sorry, you don't have any money in there. And I was like, well, where, where's my money? I said, oh, well, you know, it, it just got eaten up in, you know, interest and fees and stuff. And so, <laughs> so my balance was zero and I, and I was devastated. <laughs> and my mom was angry. But uh, that's just the the way that banks work, stealing little kids' money. <laughs> stealing everyone's money. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, um, I read an article this morning on SOT, and it was by a blogger named Joshua H. who writes for Cop Block. Um, it's an organization that... Uh, basically tries to keep police accountable. They collect stories from from individuals who've been uh, abused and um, attempts to right the situations by addressing the police departments and institutions that are supposed to be keeping an eye on uh, on these cops who are you know, ostensibly hired to serve and protect people. Anyway, I thought it was a it was pretty interesting, um, but maybe not for the most obvious reasons. Uh, so I'm going to read it. It's pretty short. Um, Joshua H. recalls, about six years ago, I had a pretty disturbing run-in with law enforcement, the justice system, which I talk about some in my author profile. During the course of these events, my bicycle was taken into custody and put into police storage. It took a few days before I was willing to go and face those horrifying monsters again in order to get my bike back. When I did walk all the way to the station to get it, 
I was told that it was actually probably in another storage area a mile away and that I should walk there and someone would meet me. It was not accepted policy to have an officer transport me there. I had to walk there and then call them when I arrived. They made it clear they didn't want to waste even a moment of their time waiting on me, a wait that was necessitated by their hijacking of my main source of quicker transportation during a nightmarish episode just days before. As I sat there in the cold evening air, waiting almost a half an hour for the officer to arrive, I went over all the awful scenarios in which I was about to be harassed for being a cop assaulter. I was sickly anxious, terrified, and felt alone and helpless. At this point, my whole life seemed ruined. When the officer finally arrived to meet me, it was an older gentleman who was part of the community services division. He immediately seemed kind and asked me how long I had been waiting and where my car was. When I told him I had walked from my house to the police station and then here and had been waiting for almost a half an hour, he shook his head and said he had only gotten the call 10 minutes ago. Furthermore, he cautioned, my bike was unlikely to be at our current location and was almost certainly across the street from the police station where I had originally been told it would be. He motioned for me to get in his vehicle and looked perplexed when I hesitated. I asked if it was okay or if he could get in trouble for giving me a ride on non-official business without prior consent from his department superiors, which I had earlier been informed was absolutely necessary by the dispatchers at the station who had sent me on this sadistic goose chase. He simply stated that it was just fine to ride along. As soon as I got into the vehicle, he introduced himself. He asked me my name and what it was that I did in Iowa City. Was I a student or did I work and live here full time? I answered those questions and then he asked me what had happened to get my bike locked up. I was too nervous to make something up or even tell the real story in a very concise way. Also, he seemed kind and trustworthy and I felt I did not have much to lose at this point. I gave him a crash course on the events and he shook his head and he gave me a sympathetic look. It's not the same as when I work these streets, he said. I couldn't work with these young guys, so I took partial retirement and do this part-time now. I warn my own kids and their kids and everyone else I care about that they have to be very careful and not trust these cops these days. They are cutthroat. It's like a competition to them, and they don't really care about the people or the community. I myself am scared of them, and I was a cop here for almost 30 years. He told me that he was sorry about what happened to me and that he understood and that I shouldn't let it affect how I feel about myself. His were some of the most comforting and kind words a stranger has ever spoken to me. I was still anxious, but not sickly so. I was still terrified, but there was some hope. I no longer felt entirely alone, and now the feelings of helplessness had a starting point from which they would begin to subside. My life was going to be very difficult to sort out, but I would find my way. What had happened was not abnormal. It was, in fact, so normal that the former colleague of the cop who assaulted me and then charged me with his crime was now reassuring me and sharing his own horror stories and warnings or advice.
It gave me my dignity back and allowed me to transform this terrible experience into a voice and a message that might create the changes to spare others similar or far worse indignities and suffering. The gentleman told me more tales of police ineptitude, immoral, unethical attitudes and behavior, and just general ignorance, pettiness, and narcissism. He was obviously very deeply concerned by these changes. He said that once it was possible to sort out the good cops from the bad ones, but that it, be- that it had become almost impossible to do so as the entire system had become misguided at best, although, quite honestly, it had become increasingly corrupt and un-American and tyrannical at its very core. As he had shown me empathy and understanding, I now returned it, realizing that the lives work of many honest people were going to be irrevocably stained forever by a tragic turn in liberty and freedom. Not only would his life's work be unkindly remembered in the future, but he would have to help to destroy that positive image to keep his own loved ones safe from what his former occupation had become. I had heard similar stories from other people, more and more so recently. Have you had a similar experience in which a police officer has lamented to you about the state of his occupation? Has a cop or former cop warned you about other cops? Are you a cop or a former cop who can sympathize with the story? Is somebody you love a cop or once was? now afraid of what is happening with individual police and the growing police state happening around the country. And, uh, and the blogger goes on to um, request similar stories uh, or any stories relating. And um, it really put a, another dimension um, to what we're seeing in the U S right now Uh available for me to understand. And, um, it wasn't even so much, uh, the, um, understanding that this old retired officer had of what had happened. I think we've all pretty much come to the conclusion that what we're seeing is, um, a pathocratic, uh, pathological, um, takeover of the entire, uh, system in the U.S. But um, I think what was most instructive to me about this um, was how much this uh, this sane, uh, empathetic, compassionate police officer was able to um, restore a little bit of hope and dignity uh, in this person who had been abused and. Um, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't reactive. It was, um, it was really kind of thoughtful and caring and, and, uh, and insightful. Mm-hmm. Well, we're going to end it there for today, everyone. Next week we'll be back, hopefully with another guest. If not, the week of that for sure. So, Everyone take care. Tune in tomorrow for Behind the Headlines and Monday for the Health and Wellness Show. And, yeah, everyone have a nice rest of your day. Thanks for listening in. Take care, everybody. All right. So thanks, everyone. And, yeah, see you next week.